to, uh, to keep that text in front of you, if you will, that you'll find on the back of your um, notice sheet. We shall we pray. So, Father, we thank you for this ancient story, and we pray that you might speak to us afresh today through it, and we ask that in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Well, today we are starting a new series on the book of Nehemiah. And um, if you've been around churches for some time, you'll know it's not unusual that when a church starts a sermon series on Nehemiah, it's because they're going to launch some kind of building project. Because Nehemiah is all about, some might say, a building project where Nehemiah, with the community, rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem. But I would contend that the book of Nehemiah is more than just about a building project, about building a wall. Now, it's fair to say that we do have a building project uh, here at Trinity, and the, the, the wardens and the trustees are very kindly said that they're going to put in a health suite at the vicarage, and, um, <clears throat> and then we're going to charge people to use it. I think that's how well, we get to keep the money. Um, we're not really, don't worry if you take that seriously. Uh, but over a year ago, we did actually buy uh, a property next door going that way, Henry's, the monumental masons who make gravestones. And if as a church we ever want to enlarge our footprint, that is probably the only way that we could go to make that happen. And actually over this past year, we have been doing some plans and schemes for next door, but because of the current global and financial economic climate, uh, we have decided to put Henry's building project on hold for just a while, unless of course, unless of course someone has uh, a million pounds or half a million will do that you'd like to give to Trinity for Henry's, um, in which case we could make a start. <laughs> it didn't work at the nine either, but, um, but you know, I think it's always good to ask. You never know, you might have won the lottery and have some money to give away. Uh, so at the moment, this building project for Next Door is, is on hold. Um, so we're not looking at Nehemiah because we've got a building project coming up, but we are looking at this book of Nehemiah because I think there are some key themes in this book, in this story, which are about prayer and community, about holiness, about the priority of God's word that I think echo down through the centuries to us today here in Guernsey in 2023. There's a sense in which it's not just an old story, but it's a story that has life to bring us life in our current context. But what is the context of Nehemiah? Well, just a little bit of background on it. Originally, the book of Nehemiah was the second part of a book that was imaginatively called Ezra Nehemiah. Uh, but what happened over time is, is that that book, that one book, Ezra Nehemiah, was split into two. And Ezra Nehemiah was named after two of the key characters in the story. And it happened um, in the Middle Ages. And um, when some of you, some of you are around. Um, and and these, these books, these two books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story of some of the last events that we find spoken about in the Old Testament. And they are all about a return from exile. And if you were with us last year, you'll know that we spoke a lot about exile and how that's a key theme within the Old, but also the New Testament, about being strangers in a foreign land, looking for God to bring us home. 
But in a nutshell, starting in 597 BC, the Babylonian Empire was on the rise. And what happened was, was that a whole bunch of Jewish people were forcibly taken by the Babylonians from Jerusalem to Babylon. And you think Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and we wept, that kind of stuff. Think of Daniel and the lion's den. Actually, the focus of the Babylonians was probably to take the great and the good from Jerusalem and put them into exile in Babylon. I'm sure most of us would have made it or not, I don't know. But that was basically their policy. They were strangers in a foreign land. Go forward 10 years, 587 BC. Don't forget that the dates go in a different direction before Christ. I haven't got my arithmetic wrong. But basically in 587 BC, the temple in Jerusalem is attacked by the Babylonians and the city is left in ruins. And I think we see similar kind of images on our TV screens today. Think about Ukraine in particular, where cities in the east of Ukraine are being destroyed as Russia pursues a scorched earth policy. Anyway, the Babylonians employed similar tactics by destroying Jerusalem and also the temple, the temple being the heart and soul of the people of God, where God's presence was to be found. And so what happened was, was that many Jews became exiles, went to Babylon, but actually some stayed behind and they lived life amongst the rubble. What happened, though, as time goes on, the Babylonians uh, didn't stick around forever. They were then taken over by the Persians. And in about 538 BC, about 60 years after that first exile, Cyrus the Great, who oversaw Persia, said that the Jewish exiles that were in the land that he had could go back to Jerusalem. He had a completely different policy than the Babylonians. It sounds like politics, doesn't it? Now, given that most of those first exiles that were in his land were dead, a new generation had been born, but very few of them knew much about the homeland that they'd been taken from. They knew about it from stories they were told, but they'd never actually been there. And so what happened is, is that as Cyrus the Great sent people back to Jerusalem, some stayed put because they'd done, as it says in Jeremiah, they, they kind of Built, they built houses, they planted vineyards, they'd married, and they'd settled down. But others made the journey back to their decimated homeland. And they went with the purpose of rebuilding the city and rebuilding the temple. Now, the first tranche of exiles were led by a chap called Zerubbabel. Now, I've been struggling to see his, say his name correctly. I say it in all kinds of different ways. But I was told this morning, there's a trick. I think, Lisa, you would probably know this, that when um, Pace go into schools to teach young people about the Old Testament, they do come across this word, Zerubbabel. And the way they get people to say it is you say, rubber ball, and put a Z on the front. Should we say that together? Zerubbabel. Brilliant. So there you go. You've all learned something new this morning. Uh, So I can now say it, but basically his name means seed of Babylon, which kind of indicates that he was probably born in Babylon. But he went back with a community to start rebuilding the temple. And about 60 years on from that, uh, then another chap called Ezra He goes back to Jerusalem, but his focus is not so much on a building project with bricks and mortar, but actually his focus is on teaching people the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, but also on rebuilding the community and challenging them to live holy and pure lives. And then about the same time as Ezra, we have Nehemiah. 
He hears about the brokenness of Jerusalem. He hears it from his brother. And in his heart, something stirs, and he wants to go back to Jerusalem to start rebuilding the city walls. Because at that time, a city without walls was incredibly vulnerable and open to attack. And if Jerusalem was to have any kind of future, the walls needed to be rebuilt. So Nehemiah has it on his heart to rebuild the walls. But who's this bloke, Nehemiah? Well, if you look in chapter 1, verse 11, it says at the end that Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. Who was the king at the time? I'll tell you what his name is. His name was Artaxerxes. Who was right? Someone? Oh, well done. Two, three. Um, so basically, that was the king. And, uh, and this cupbearer was a bit like a butler. Think Carson from Downton Abbey, for those of you who watch that kind of stuff. Um, and in some ways, this job was, on the one hand, it was a brilliant job. But on the other hand, it was an absolutely awful job. It was a great job because one of the key roles of the cupbearer was to sample all of the food and the drink that was given to the king. So Nehemiah tasted the finest food and drink in the empire. But the downside of the job was that the reason why Nehemiah <coughs> tasted <coughs> all of the food and the drink that the king would have was to make sure that the food and drink wasn't poisoned. And so basically, if there were people out to get the king, they might try and poison the food and drink. And the role of the cupbearer was to taste it and to see whether it was poisoned. And if it was poisoned, what would happen to them? They would die. So you can see, it was an amazing job and an awful job at the same time. It was what you might call a curate's egg, good in parts. When the job was good, it was amazing, but if it was bad, you died. Simple as that. Now, that was Nehemiah's job. But a key aspect, though, of this job was that he did actually have the ear of the king. Nehemiah found himself in a strategic place for God's purposes. He was in the right place and the right time. And then what happens is he hears about the brokenness of Jerusalem. Take a look with me at chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. It says, In the month of Kislev, which is about December time, in the 20th year, which is about 445 BC, while I was in the citadel of Susa, which is a city that is now in modern-day Iran, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Nehemiah wanted to know how his homeland was getting on. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So despite the initial work of Zerubbabel and Ezra, things still aren't looking good in Jerusalem. It's still a place of brokenness. And actually what you find then is that because of the news that Nehemiah hears, his first instinct is to weep and fast and pray. In the face of this bad news, in the face of brokenness, it says in verse 4, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the King of heaven, the God of heaven, you know, just as an aside though, you know, if I had Nehemiah's job as cupbearer to the king, I think I would be fasting quite often. 
because I don't want to get poisoned. But maybe he didn't have that option. Anyway, but what we find there, in the face of the brokenness of Jerusalem, Nehemiah's first instinct is to weep and fast and pray. And as I've been looking at this text over this past week, I've been reflecting actually on what my first instinct is when I hear bad news, especially around that theme of brokenness and despair. You know, whether it's what I see in the news, thinking especially about Ukraine at this time, whether it's I, I hear about a, a relationship that has broken down between people, maybe a marriage that has broken down, maybe a broken relationship between a person and God and that person has walked away from their faith, whether it's about the brokenness and despair that we find in the church. And at this moment in time, there's a lot of brokenness and despair in the good old Church of England, whether it's related to falling numbers or a decline in leaders, discussions about living in love and faith or diminishing finances. There's a lot of despair and brokenness within the church. And I've been reflecting on what my response is, my first instinct is, when I'm faced with news like Nehemiah was faced with news. Is it to weep and fast and pray? I'm not proud to admit that often my first instinct isn't to pray, but it's actually just to shrug my shoulders in indifference and to move on. The Holocaust survivor, Elie Wiesel, wrote this, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. He goes on to say the opposite of art is not ugliness, it's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy, it's indifference. And the opposite of life is not death, it's indifference. At times in my own life, when I'm faced with news of brokenness, the opposite of prayer and fasting is indifference a shrug of the shoulders, some hardness of heart, and I move on. And for me, uh, the first challenge from this ancient text, and maybe to you, is what is your first instinct when you're faced with brokenness and despair? Are you indifferent, or do you come to God in prayer on your knees? So Nehemiah, his first instinct is to pray. But what does he pray? Well, the prayer is in here, and uh, we're not going to do all of it, but I just want to pick out a couple of things that you might call a couple of confessions that uh, Nehemiah makes, confessions about God and confessions about the people he represents. In verses 5 and 6, he says this, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying. Nehemiah begins his prayer with a confession of who God is. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Uh, Theologian John Goldinger, who wrote a commentary on this text, he said, there's this confession of who God is, and it is a foundation for all that follows. He says, we pray because God is the one who's invited us to call him by name, the name Yahweh, but this God is not merely someone in a personal relationship with us, but is the all-powerful Lord, the God of the heavens. This God that Nehemiah prays to is both the Alpha and the Omega, He is a creator and sustainer of all that is and was and is to come. 
The Apostle Paul speaks about him in Ephesians 3 and says that this God, the Lord, the God of heaven, is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask for or pray. A bishop I used to work for, John Pritchard, uh, observed that sometimes in church, what we can do is we pray, and in church he can be a mild person speaking to a mild God in a mild way on behalf of a mild congregation who hope that God will not answer their prayers too energetically. (laughs) At times, our prayers, we pray in a mild way to a mild God. But Nehemiah is not in that place. Come through to the New Testament, we find in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus starts his prayer by saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And he recognises in that, that God is both imminent, he's close, but also transcendent. He's powerful and far above us all. As we look at Nehemiah's prayer, I'm reminded of a quote that I came on many years ago by a spirituality writer, Andrew Murray, who said this. He said, the power of our prayer depends almost entirely upon our apprehension of who it is with whom we speak. We speak as Nehemiah does. We confess that the one we pray to is not a mild God, but he is Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. How do you pray? Do you pray in a mild way to a mild God? Or do we pray recognizing who it is with whom we speak? The second thing that Nehemiah confesses in this prayer is who he is, and also who, what God's people are like, the people he represents. He says um, in verse 6 and 7, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Nehemiah, in his prayer, comes before God in a spirit of humility. He recognises both his sin and the sins of the people he represents. Nehemiah is very open and honest before God. He says, we are sinful. He says, we are wicked. He doesn't offer any kind of excuse, but he recognises first who God is, and then he recognises that the brokenness that he hears about in Jerusalem is also in him as well. You could say that his prayer is very much like a prayer prayed in Luke 18, prayed by a tax collector, where the tax collector simply says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Over the years, that prayer has been adapted. It's known as the Jesus prayer. And it says this, Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a prayer I pray a lot. Because I recognize that when God answers my prayer, he doesn't do it because I am good, but he does it because he is gracious. In our prayer, it's key. We confess who God is, but also who we are. The theologian Frederick Buechner said this, listen carefully, to confess your sins to God is not to tell him anything he doesn't already know. Until you confess them, however, they are the abyss between you. They are that gap between you and God. When you confess them, they become the bridge. 
when we in prayer confess our sinfulness and our wickedness, and there's a lot of it around, even here in Guernsey, our prayer becomes like a bridge for God's forgiveness, for his power and his presence to be at work in our lives and in the world. Nehemiah then ends his prayer by asking God to give him success when he goes to see the king and asks him if he can go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. Does God answer Nehemiah's prayer? Well, like any good box set, we'll find out about that next week. <clears throat> we'll leave that on a cliffhanger. But just a couple of thoughts about prayer and maybe next steps for you and me. Whilst we may not be building on the Henry site at the moment next door, we do have some building work that is starting next week in the lobby, and it's been planned for quite some time. And the plan is to put in a folding panel wall in the lobby so that during the week we can use that room as another room on the ground floor. But the priority of that room will be for it to be a place of prayer. Not quite 24-7 prayer, though who knows, but a place that can then be booked out specifically, either alone or together, for prayer and intercession. It reminds me um, of a quote by an Irish pastor, came from Belfast, called J. Edwin Orr. He said this, whenever God is ready to do something new with his people, he always sets them to praying. My final thought is a challenge, though, to you to pray persistently for broken people and broken situations that God might be at work. I've been reading a book recently called Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, an invitation to the wonder and mystery of prayer. And prayer is very mysterious, but we just need to do it. It tells a story about a mother who sees brokenness in her son and sets herself to pray persistently for him. It goes like this. Monica was a single mum with one child, a son. She was a devout believer who sang hymns over her child in his infancy and prayed nightly with her hand on his forehead. The boy grew up to see the world quite differently from his mother. As an adolescent, he became known in their town as a womanizer, would often be seen publicly drunk at untold hours of the night. He had an extraordinary intellect and eventually became a philosopher, channeling all of his energy into combating his mother's Christian faith. Monica didn't give up. She continued to pray nightly for her son's salvation, just as she had done with her hand on his tiny forehead when she was a young mother. When he was 19, Monica had a dream through which she believed God was promising to answer her prayers for her son. In response to her dream, she grew more intense in her prayer. A year passed, then another year, then another. There was no change, no moment of hope, no change of heart or openness to belief. Nine years after that dream, her son made plans to travel to Rome, known for its revelry and debauchery. Monica stayed awake all night in intense prayer that God would prevent his travels. Little did she know that her son had changed his plans and sailed for Rome that very night, already on his way as she prayed. On that trip, sitting alone one afternoon in a Roman garden, Monica's son heard the audible voice of God speaking to him. Bewildered, he opened up the very scriptures 
he had dedicated himself to despising and disproving. Right then and there, in that garden, he surrendered his life to Jesus. Monica's son's name was Augustine, who went on to become Saint Augustine, widely considered the greatest theologian in history and a father to the early Christian church. Prayer releases power. Is there a broken person, a broken situation that comes to mind for you? I know there is for me. And will your first instinct, like Nehemiah, be to pray for them persistently, recognising who God is and recognising who you are, that God is powerful, we are sinful, but he is gracious. And as you pray persistently for that broken situation, remember this, prayer releases power. Shall we stand? So, Father, as we come to look at this book of Nehemiah, we pray that you would speak to us, both alone and together, individually and corporately. And we pray that, as your disciples said to Jesus many years ago, we pray that you would teach us how to pray. And we pray that as we pray, that power would come and bring hope to despair, would bring healing to brokenness, that you would bring prodigals home. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.